From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. And not even existential threat can stop corporate polluters and their political minions from digging our graves. We hear some sane voices from the U.N. Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland. The U.S. military is the single largest consumer of fossil fuels and the largest polluter on Earth. War causes warming. And we must address militarization if we want to address climate change. And in Washington, D.C., an environmental justice scandal with national reverberations as students at Howard University are entering their fourth week of protesting about student housing plagued by mold and rodents. Civil rights leaders are stepping in, saying that Howard is violating federal regulations for education, housing, and environmental protection. We are in the process of preparing to file a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education because of the amount of funding that Howard University receives from the federal government. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. While President Biden pledged this week to be a leader in fighting the climate catastrophe at the Climate Summit in Glasgow, the reality is that just days before at another summit of G20 countries, he urged oil producers to pump more oil. And here at home, he failed to stop the Line 3 tar sands pipeline in northern Minnesota, and gutted key climate provisions in his own Build Back Better Act in effort to get the support of right-wing extremists in his own party, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. And then to top off this blatant capitulation to corporations, the U.S. Supreme Court has just decided that it will hear a case to decide whether the Federal Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to regulate harmful corporate emissions. One of the few speeches by world leaders at the climate summit to directly address this double speak of how are we going to pay for that came from the prime minister of Barbados, Mia Amor Motley. The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. $25 trillion. Of that, $9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that 25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition, or the transition of how we eat, or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us. I say to you today in Glasgow, that an annual increase in the SDRs of $500 billion a year for 20 years, put in a trust to finance the transition is the real gap, Secretary General, that we need to close, not the 50 billion being proposed for adaptation. And if 500 billion songs big to you, guess what? It is just 2% of the 25 trillion. This is the sword we need to wield. Our excitement one hour into this event is far less than it 
was six months ago leading up to this event. Can we, with those voices and these speeches from Sir David and others, find it within ourselves to get the resolve to bring Glasgow back on track? Or do we leave today believing that it was a failure before it starts? Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road. One no less significant than when the United Nations was formed in 1945. But then, the majority of our countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist a hundred years from now. And if our existence is to mean anything, then we must act in the interests of all of our people who are depending on us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction. Biden arrived back in D.C. just in time for news of the defeat of Democrat Terry McAuliffe in the Virginia governor's race. But he was also greeted by calls from Americans to stop excluding the gargantuan carbon footprint of the U.S. military from climate agreements. A meeting of scientists, environmentalists and peace activists on Thursday in Glasgow reiterated that the Pentagon is the largest institutional consumer of oil in the world. And on Wednesday, Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California introduced a resolution to monitor and reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the U.S. military, saying, quote, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has said that climate change is a national security issue and we must treat it as such. And yet the U.S. military is estimated to emit more CO2 than over 120 separate countries and would rank 47th out of 170 if measured as a separate country, end quote. Related to American aggression against other countries, Lee also took to the floor of Congress on Thursday to denounce House Resolution 760. To support people in Cuba, the U.S. defines as protesters, but the government of Cuba defines as U.S.-supported agents. Mr. Speaker, uh, I rise in opposition to H.R.S. 760, but let me just say I, too, support the basic rights of the Cuban people, the basic human rights of the Cuban people. Uh, As an African-American who has engaged in many protests for justice, I know the impact of keeping government and police forces from interfering in our actions for our basic rights. So we should not excuse the Cuban government for limiting their own people's freedom and opportunity. But let me just say, here in Congress, we need to also take a hard look at the failed U.S. policy that has not helped the Cuban people and too often inflicted harm on them. They say insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, for 60 years... We have been squeezing the Cuban people, thinking that if we starve them just enough, it will somehow lead to democracy. So it's long overdue to support policies that truly help the Cuban people. The Obama administration showed us that we can take a new approach. That's through engagement, diplomacy, trade, travel, and yes, support for human rights for the Cuban people. And so I ask my colleagues to oppose this resolution on the suspension calendar today, and we should have an honest debate about a new Cuban policy that talks about and supports what real human rights for the Cuban people mean. Many of these individuals in Cuba are working to stage a protest on November 15th that the Cuban government says is illegal because the promoters advocate against their own people in Cuba and destruction of their socialist system. 
as we go to broadcast, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is scheduling a vote on both the infrastructure bill and the whittled down Build Back Better Act that includes benefits for working families, including universal pre-K, funding for child care, elder care, health care, and the climate. But surprise, surprise, the right-wing Dems may still have one more bait-and-switch up their sleeves and may try to force even more cuts in the legislation that is overwhelmingly popular with the American people. But we're continuing to cover this story and report it to you here on On the Ground. Now, while the Democrats may still pass some economic relief for American families, Their failure to eliminate the filibuster to secure voting rights meant that this week, a vote to restore the 1965 Voting Rights Act to its original strength was once again voted down in the Senate. One lone Republican, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, joined Democrats to support voting rights, but those voting in support did not meet the made-up filibuster rule that 60 votes are needed for legislation to pass. On Wednesday, there was a rally for Congress to actually vote to strengthen democracy. And Chantel James was on hand. People for the American Way, the League of Women Voters U.S., and other organizations collaborated with civil rights leaders in marching for voting rights on Wednesday. No more excuses. Voting rights now began with a march to the gates of the White House to demand that President Biden uphold his campaign promises with legislation for voting rights for all and was followed by a speaker's rally. Martin Luther King III connected the ongoing struggle for voting rights to the civil rights movement of the past as he spoke. Since January, our nation and 19 states have chosen create bills, over 400 now, that make it harder for people to vote. How many women and men gave their lives so that we have the right to vote? 63% of the people want voter protections and voter expansion. That means that our senators, and largely Democratic, I think, senators, Attendees risked arrest at this demonstration for social justice. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. In D.C., activists celebrated this week the defeat in the D.C. Council of an effort to crack down on the district's unregulated recreational marijuana businesses. Currently, businesses can gift marijuana in a manner that effectively circumvents the local prohibition on retail cannabis sales. Marijuana possession and gifting is legal under a voter-approved 2014 initiative. Now, for several weeks in a row, D.C. residents have also risked arrest, even tying themselves to heavy machinery to block the renewed destruction of McMillan Park, the district's first integrated park, to make way for a mega housing and commercial development. Thomas O'Rourke checked it out. I spoke to activists Carrie Kemp and Chris Otten this past Saturday during an informational picket at First and Channing Streets Northwest on the edge of the slated McMillan demolition. I am here because I am protesting the demolition of McMillan Park, which is an Olmstead. It's designed by Frederick Law Olmstead Jr. and it was the first integrated park in DC and it's 25 acres of green space 
and it's public land. It's a historic site, and and I would like to see it preserved for public purposes. Right now, the city has given this land, paid developers to take it, basically to build luxury housing that I don't think we need more of. Certainly not on the site. This is a unique site that I would like to see preserved for public purposes. I don't want to see 25 sure. acres of public land be given away to private developers for unaffordable housing, an unneeded medical facility, and the loss of massive green space that's the last of it in this corridor. I mean, they're going to blow out Armed Forces Retirement Home with 2,500 condos just north of here any day now, and 6,000 parking spaces north of here. That's like five McMillans. So it's like, this is it for us. This is it for D.C. public land. And they want to just turn it over. I mean, at the, t- the height of terrible land deals 10 years ago, where the city's going to pay the developer to take the land from us to build their luxury condos and privatize it and make, I heard, a $2 billion windfall. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. And finally, the 13th annual Black People's March on the White House is November 6, 2021, beginning with a rally at Malcolm X Park, also known as Meridian Hill Park in Northwest D.C., at 12 noon. There's also a Sunday conference on Zoom, November 7, 2021, at 11 a.m. The Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations is the sponsor of the actions, and the theme is Deepening the Resistance to Police Terror, Honoring Our Political Prisoners and Prisoners of War, Black Community Control of the Police. And all information about the events is on Facebook and Eventbrite. Now, one of the scheduled speakers, Black is Back Coalition Actions, is Marsha Coleman Adebayo, head of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition, which we reported last on our last show, just won a major victory preventing the sale of an apartment complex in Bethesda, Maryland, which was built on top of an historic African-American cemetery. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. In the farms in the valley, they're out picking cherries, dropping dead on the field with a bucket of berries. City of bridges, each one like a frown. It's 116 degrees in Portland town. No way out, even north of the border. Welcome to the New World Order, produced by criminal corporate clowns. It's 116 degrees in Portland town. Blinken's bombing Baghdad, there's a famine in Tigray. Amazing. Thank you so much, David, all the way from the U.S., And I myself am all the way from the U.S., from the San Francisco Bay Area, where climate change is right at our front door. We have seen massive drought, massive fires, which have completely wiped off cities and towns off the face of the earth. 
climate change is real. It is here. And what else is real is the over amount of spending on arms across the globe, particularly the U.S., which spends way too much money on militarism. So here today, we are making the connection between climate change and militarism. I'm going to go ahead and pass it on to my co-organizer, Tim Pluto, who's going to talk about the work that we've been doing around making those connections. Tim. Thanks, Nancy. War is obsolete and needs to be abolished to prevent a climate collapse. Hi, my name's Tim, and I volunteer for an organization called World Beyond War that works to abolish war. In an effort to strengthen climate justice, we offer the following short petition inviting everyone around the world to sign it, joining the over 25,000 individuals who have already signed it and the 500 organizations that have done so as well. Here it is, short and sweet. As a result of final hour demands made by the United States government during negotiation of the 1997 Kyoto Treaty, military greenhouse gas emissions were exempted from climate negotiations. That tradition has continued. The 2015 Paris Agreement left cutting military greenhouse gas emissions to the discretion of individual nations. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change obliges signatories to publish annual greenhouse gas emissions, but military emissions reporting is voluntary and, of course, often not included. NATO has acknowledged the problem, but has not created any specific requirements to address it. There is no reasonable basis for this gaping loophole for the number one polluter in the world, the military forces. War and war preparations are major greenhouse gas emitters. All greenhouse gas emissions need to be included in mandatory greenhouse gas emission reduction standards. There must be no more exemptions for military pollution. We ask COP26 to set strict greenhouse gas emissions limits that make no exception for militarism. Include transparent reporting requirements and independent verification, and do not rely on schemes to offset emissions. Greenhouse gas emissions from a country's overseas military bases must be fully reported and charged to that country, not the country where the base is located. You can sign this petition that you just heard by going online at worldbeyondwar.org or come see me. I have a copy of the petition with me and a list for you to sign if you'd like to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Tim, and this is a petition that we will pass on to world leaders 
and representatives asking for greenhouse gas emissions to be included in the COP, Jody, if not this I'd year, like then COP 27. What I'd like to do is invite my sister Sheila back up to the microphone. She's with the Micronesia Climate Change Alliance. Thank you. This is Margaret. This is Margaret. Thank you. Half a day, My name is Sheila Jack Babalta. I am a representative from the Mariana Islands. I am an elected official. I am serving my fourth year in office and learning so much about the intersection of colonialism, militarism, and climate change in the Mariana Islands. I am here with the It Takes Roots delegation, and I am so grateful and proud to be here with allies. I traveled almost 20,000 miles just to be here in Scotland. It was a long flight, and my lungs are still acclimating, as you heard earlier. In my homeland, the military has desecrated sacred land. We have one of our islands used solely for military activities and training purposes. Our local people have no access to this island for almost 100 years. The military has poisoned our waters and has killed and threatened our marine mammals and wildlife. We no longer are able to plant indigenous food and access indigenous lands like we once did centuries ago. In, our, in my homeland, in our islands, is where the bombs, the atomic bombs, took off to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That is how interconnected the Mariana Islands is to the military. The U.S. military is the single most largest consumer of fossil fuels and the largest polluter on Earth. War causes warming and we must address militarization if we want to address climate change. And we must hold the U.S. military accountable and quit making exceptions. The Marianas Trench is right next to my home. And the Marianas Trench Marine National Monument was, it was um, designated during President Bush's administration. The management plan just came out this year. And guess what? The military is exempt. It's time to decarbonize, it's time to decolonize, and it's time to demilitarize. Viva! <laughs> what do we want? When do we want it? Now! What do we want? When do we want it? I would like to invite up uh, Sean, who is a speaker with the Scottish Peace Network. They are scheduled to have a peace vigil immediately after uh, this rally, and hopefully you can join them. Sean? I'm speaking here in a personal capacity. The fact is, children are dying in Ethiopia. Yes! Children are dying in Syria. Yes! 
Children are dying in Yemen. Innocent people are dying in these wars. And the United Kingdom government gives export licenses on a massive scale for a massive war industry here in the United Kingdom to these companies. And that is disgraceful. But in addition to that, we have a Scottish government. The Scottish government under Nicola Sturgeon. And it has to be said, I am a nationalist. I believe in Scottish independence. However, in the last year, the Scottish government have given out £700,000. And over the last 10 to 20 years, we have given, the last 14 years, we have given £20 million to companies here in Scotland who only do arms manufacture. Talis, Raytheon, BAE, companies like Camring. These are the companies based here in, the, in Scotland who have been getting this money from the Scottish Government. British governments and Scottish governments have got to stop giving money to arms companies to remove the military carbon footprint from here and in the rest of Britain. And that's what we have got to do. And we have got to remember it's men, women and children, innocent, who are dying in these wars abroad made by the weapons of production here in Scotland, here in the UK. And it's got to stop now. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sean, for bringing your passion, bringing your fire. Even though it's cold, fire is running it through our bellies. And we want to see an end to war and an end to, to climate chaos and climate destruction. I'd like to invite up my next uh, friend who is one of the co-founders of the Stop the War Coalition, Chris Nynum. Thanks very much. I'd like to thank all the previous speakers uh, for their wise words, but I'd also like to thank the people of Glasgow for everything you've done already in protesting, in taking to the streets, in mobilising against the blather that is coming from the COP26 conference. And I've just come up from London and I have to say, I have more confidence in you all, in the people who've taken to the streets to deal with the problems we face than I do with the world leaders gathered behind the police cordon up the road. And I feel that it's a disgrace, really, that we're having to make these points that are being made on the steps of Buchanan Street today and not inside the conference itself. This is not a marginal issue. In fact, the question of militarism and the question of war goes right to the heart of the question of dealing with climate change. And I want to just repeat a couple of the points that Tim made right at the start about the central strategic role that is played by the military. The US military is the biggest institutional consumer of oil on the globe. The US military is the biggest single agency emitting CO2 anywhere in the world. In fact, the US military is the entity that does more to poison the ecosphere 
than any other entity anywhere around the earth. And so this isn't a marginal question. This isn't just something that is an add-on. This should be right at the heart of the negotiations and right at the heart of the questions that we face and of the debate about climate change. But it's also a wider issue because the danger is that we're set on a vicious circle that really endangers the future of the planet because it's not just that war creates warming, it's also that war, warming creates war. The resource scarcities that are being created, the movements of peoples, the tension, the destruction of whole societies that has been a product of the last two decades of war supported by the Western powers is leading to a situation where more wars will be generated, where there will be greater tension, where the dangers of warfare are actually increased. And the fact that we are outside here, the fact that we are having to make these points outside of the conference suggests one thing to me, and these statistics suggest one thing to me, that in order to deal with the question of climate change, we are going to have to move against war and militarism. In fact, we are going to have to fundamentally restructure the society that we live in. We are going to have to challenge the political, the social, the economic organisation of the kind of societies that we live in. And unfortunately, I have to share the widespread scepticism, the widespread cynicism there is about the process that is taking place in Glasgow this fortnight. I have to say that it is going to be the people of the world, it is going to be the trade unions, it is going to be the movements, it is going to be working people organising, mobilising and fighting back that is the only hope to deal with the, uh, the, the, the desperate problems, the catastrophic situation that we face. And therefore, I think what we have to see this fortnight as a kind of launch or a relaunch of a global movement that will reach out to millions of people around the world and that will become integrated into all the social movements. We are going to have to make deep social transformations in order to deal with this problem. And that process, those protests start now. We have tomorrow, and I'm, I'm overjoyed at the fact that Greta Thunberg has called for a school strike tomorrow and that she has made the links between the school strike movement and the strikes that are taking place in Glasgow in the cleansing department and elsewhere. Those are important strategic links that are being made. And I call on all of you to make sure that you're in Kelvin Grove Park, not just on Saturday for the big demonstration, but tomorrow to support the school strikes, to support the links with the strikers of Glasgow and begin to fuse together a social movement that brings working people, that brings the climate movement, that brings the anti-war movement and the anti-austerity movement together. That is the task we have to set ourselves. That is the challenge before us. But I believe, I honestly believe that we can do it. See you in Kelvin Grove Park tomorrow at 11 o'clock. Let's take this to the streets. Let's show those people that we don't trust them, that we actually do have the solutions. Thank you very much. See you on the streets tomorrow.
please uh, give a big welcome to Mohammed Asif, who's now going to talk about not just Afghanistan, but the need to oppose war generally. Mohammed Asif. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Good evening, brothers and sisters. And thank you for the organizers today. I remember in 2001, after 9-11, when the atrocities happened in uh, New York and Washington, and Afghanistan was blamed for all the atrocities. Sadly, over 3,000 innocent people were killed, but then Afghans have to pay the price. I wrote a lengthy letter to the war criminal Tony Blair that the war in Afghanistan is not the solution what happened in 9-11 and I received a reply for Tony Blair telling me that this time we will not walk away from the people of Afghanistan. We will stand with the people of Afghanistan but 20 years later that exactly was the opposite. Did the West, including Britain and America and NATO, the warmongers, you know, the war criminals who go around and wait illegally other countries and this, then displace the entire population, bomb their families, create refugees like myself and so many others who have no place in their country. And when we arrive here, we are told you're not wanted in this country. Brothers and sisters, I remember in Afghanistan, you know, in the 80s and 90s, when the West was telling us that this is a holy war against the Russian or the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, the very people that Britain and America call them terrorists today, they were their closest friend, including bin Laden and his family and other terrorists were trained in Britain by Britain and America. They were their closest allies, you know, who were fighting the Cold War in Afghanistan. But once their interests finish in Afghanistan, then they call them terrorists for different reasons. If I tell you the brutal Taliban, they were killing innocent Afghans in 1996 until 2001, but the West, including Britain, was keeping silent because they were not killing British or Americans because they were terrorizing my brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. When 9-11 happened, suddenly George W. Bush and Tony Blair told us that there is a regime is called the Taliban and they are terrorists. But when they were killing us, nobody was calling them terrorists, brothers and sisters. When we were telling Tony Blair and others that the war in Afghanistan needs a political solution, we were told no. The anti-war movement, like Chris spoke early, you know, millions of people marching, including Glasgow, telling Tony Blair that Afghanistan needs a political solution, we were told no. Brothers and sisters, after 20 years, or nearly 21 years of war, hundreds of thousands innocent Afghans killed by Taliban, by the Islamic State, by Britain, America, NATO, Canada, Australia, the French, and so many others. The people of Afghanistan are suffering because it is Britain and America and other imperialist power in the West when they go and change regimes, when they launch illegal wars around the world like Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Yemen, in Sudan, in Somalia, in many other countries, brothers and sisters. You look any conflict around the world, Britain is the second power after the United States. Whenever, you know, America launch a war, you know, Britain closes its eyes and joins 
they know the illegal wars in Afghanistan. Britain right now is number two, second, you know, second in the world, selling weapons across the world. You know, with British weapons, you know, the Yemenis, yeah, Yemenis, the Yemenis are killed, you know, sold to Saudi Arabia and the people of Yemen are butchered. Brothers and sisters, you know, Afghanistan is not a population of 20,000. When you see, you know, the, the sky and the BBC and other news channel, that Britain is so compassionate taking 20,000 asylum seekers or refugees from Afghanistan. Britain is responsible right now for the poverty in Afghanistan, for our, um, our miseries, you know, for women who are not allowed to work, for our sisters who are not allowed to obtain education, because these were the same people, the Taliban, who were empowered in the 80s, fought against the Russian, and these are the same people back, brought back to power by Britain and America. So please write to your MPs and MSPs or whoever is representing you that what is happening in Afghanistan after the mismanagement of the illegal war in Afghanistan, it is not in our name and the people of Afghanistan need help. Thank you. That was Mohammed Asif, one of the activists staging a rally Thursday, November 4th, 2021 in Glasgow, Scotland, outside the UN Climate Summit. And the focus of this action was on war and militaries as a key driver of the climate catastrophe. Those voices began with Nancy Macias of Code Pink, Tom Hutton of World Beyond War, Sheila Jack Babalta, an elected official of the Mariana, of the Mariana Islands, Sean of the Scottish Peace Network, and Chris Nynum, co-founder of the Stop the War Coalition. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. The ground beneath my feet, I know was made for me. There is no any one place where I belong. My spirit's meant to be free, and soon now everyone will see. Life was made for us to be what we want to be. On the ground, on the ground show.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And in Washington, D.C., there is an environmental justice scandal with national reverberations. As students at Howard University are in their fourth week of protesting student housing plagued by mold and rodents, civil rights leaders are stepping in, saying that Howard is violating federal regulations for education, housing, environmental protection, and even the First Amendment rights of these students. One of the students, Channing Hill, 
and Akosua Ali, president of the D.C. chapter of the NAACP, spoke Wednesday to Verna Avery Brown of What's at Stake on WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington. There was no question about whether I would show up for my bison community. It was, I've heard, for me, in, when I first came to campus in 2019, if I wanted to study, my study partners were rats, roaches, and the hallways that I walked through to get to my room were dripping with sewage. There was never any question about whether I would show up and continue to sleep in the Blackburn building because to not show up would be a disservice not only to myself, but to my little sister who could possibly come to Howard after me. Mm -hmm. So now you had a, a bout with mold infestation when you lived in the dorm known as the Quad in 2019. Yes, what happened to you at that time? What was your experience with the mold? So I have severe allergies, especially when it comes to mold. In 2019, when I moved into the quad, I continued to have severe allergic reactions that I could not get under control. It eventually turned into my entire face being broken out in patches of hives and bags under my eyes that were just so swollen, the inflammation around my eyes, my neck, and my mouth. I ended up needing steroid shots to calm the, um, the allergic reaction down. And I'd never had one this bad. I'd never had an allergic reaction like this before in my life. And since I've moved out of quad, I've never had one since then. Mm -hmm. Did um, you report that experience to the administration at the time? I didn't report it at the time because honestly, until other students started confirming mold, I didn't suspect it. I came to Howard University expecting that my university would protect me, expecting that the upwards of $10,000 that it costs to live on this campus a year would ensure me adequate housing, first class housing. I was unsuspecting. Mm. Okay. And so were you able to finish the school year? My freshman year was 2019. It was the COVID year. We were sit home um, on March 13th, my birthday, actually. <laughs> and after I got home is when I started healing. But we nobody came back for the school year in 2019. Okay. Well, there's a great deal of support for the students coming from the national community. Reverend Jesse Jackson has spent several days on campus with the students. And in fact, unfortunately, he fell yesterday and hit his head, causing him to be hospitalized overnight. He's since been released and is reportedly doing well. The NAACP has been actively supporting the student's case. Akasua Ali is president of the NAACP DC chapter. Good morning, Ms. Ali. Welcome to What's at Stake. The NAACP has stepped right up to the plate to assist the students. Why so? Does the administration have a right to insist the protesters clear out the building before they negotiate? 
Absolutely not. That's not how negotiations work. Of course, the NAACP is stepping into this because we have multiple interests at stake in this situation. First and foremost, these Howard University students are our students. The NAACP DC branch in particular has parents, has alumni of Howard University, and we also have a Howard University NAACP chapter with over 100 students on that campus. But more importantly, what's happening on Howard University's campus sets precedent for what can happen on college campuses across the country. We know the history of Howard University, how it has been a home and training ground for protests and historic movements where student activists have been born out of Howard. It's known as the uh, premier HBCU, Mecca, all of that, which is great, but the real truth and essence of the beauty that comes out of Howard is the fight that is instilled in its students. The campus of Howard University and this protest itself is a training ground for these young people to be change agents across our country and within their communities. So the NAACP stands with activists all day, every day that are fighting for equality and justice. And in this space, they're fighting for housing justice. They're fighting for environmental justice. And they're fighting for governance, a seat at the table to ensure that their voices are heard. So you asked the question earlier, where do we go from here? At this time, these students are tired. They're exhausted. They have been on the front line for a long time. Now it is time for us as adults, for the NAACP and other national leaders like Reverend Jesse Jackson stepped up. We know the Reverend Barber is going to be joining as well. It's time that we stand in solidarity with these students to bring up the rear because they have been at the forefront of this fight for a long time. You've already said this is the longest protest that we have seen thus far. So they need reassurance. They need shoring up. They need us to back them up on this. And we're going to, we as the DC NAACP are now going to help step in and put some additional pressure on. Well, in fact, you all have already taken a number of measures. Can you outline specifically what actions the NAACP DC has already taken? Absolutely. So, so far, I've had some preliminary conversations with President Wayne Frederick. Of course, before the NAACP or any organization should take a position, you want to ascertain all of the facts and really try to be fair and give due diligence to all sides of the situation to understand what is happening. So the, that conversation happened to really state our position, which is that we are in full support. The NAACP is in full support of these students and academic and legal immunity for these students. Mm. I express that they have a right to protest and that ultimately it's uncomfortable for you right now because it might make you look bad because this is happening on your watch. But the reality is grace needs to be given to these students so that they have an opportunity to really tweak their voice, strengthen those muscles so that they're able to advocate. Because at the end of the day, when this protest is over, these are going to be our fighters of today and tomorrow. And when we are seniors in wheelchairs and can no longer fight for ourselves. So that was the most important thing that I was able to articulate to him is that these students are not alone. Mm, so were you able to read his position on amnesty or immunity for these student protesters? Did he give mm -hmm. any indication that he might be inclined to budge on that? So this was an early on conversation shortly after October 12th when the situation first developed. So again, that was a preliminary conversation. As follow-up, 
President Darren Johnson of the NAACP National Office and myself signed on to a joint letter and also issued a joint press release reiterating the same thing, that these student protesters have a right to advocate for environmental justice, housing, and all of these spaces. So the pressure has been put on. But this is what our next steps look like. We are going to pick up the pressure. So we are in the process of preparing to file a complaint with the U.S. Department of Education because of the amount of funding that Howard University receives from the federal government. There are requirements that this university is responsible for ensuring healthy, habitable conditions for its students. In addition, we have HUD. So there is a housing oversight element to this as well. We have the EPA. We are working with the students to actually collect the data of all of the students that have been impacted by mold and have documentation, medical documentation to support that there are public health, asthma, connected results from tied to the mold, that there is an actual legitimate public health issue that is happening. And it is a housing crisis, Mm -hmm. which gives legitimacy for this to be raised with the Department of Education, with HUD, with the EPA. And on a local level, we Mm -hmm. have raised this to the D.C. Department of Health. But now it is time that we put the pressure on. We let the university know that you have been successful in outmaneuvering these students thus far. You've been picking them off one by one and having side conversations with them you're wearing them down right Mm, they mm. have been worn down the administration gets to go home at night and has a good night's sleep and gets Mm. to have a full breakfast in the morning these students who are sleeping in tents in the cold are eating what food is provided to them rarely getting hot meals so they are becoming exhausted and the game is to wear them down so if we are adults who are working with all of our mental faculties on a full stomach then you have an opportunity to figure out what is the narrative that we're going to to tell the media. They have mm. been giving guided tours to media of dorms that they have cleaned, and it pre- creates a picture as if there's no mold issue here at the university. Let me show you these nice, bright, and clean mm-hmm. dorms when they're really trying to control the narrative and the students are really successfully getting outmaneuvered on this because mm-hmm. the university is successfully able to control the narrative. But so you, let, let me just say that you are, are you all pressuring the board because the board has a position, they're in a position to be able to make a difference here as well. You yes. mentioned the, the federal funding, uh, which is another uh, lever that can be effective in this situation. We know that Howard University got a $40 million grant, or not a grant, but a a donation that could be helpful in terms of cleaning up some of the mold in this. And you also mentioned the fact that the president may be embarrassed, but he's he's really been embroiled in, in controversy for quite some time now on that campus. There were three votes of no confidence for him. A letter sent by the faculty, the administrators, and the staff was a scathing letter saying his presidency is, quote, a dark and shameful moment in Howard's history. And it's not even individually signed because out of fear of reprisal. So that is the kind of administration that you're working with here. And and while we're seeing that the students are out on the front lines, that there seems to be an army of support showing up behind them through the NAACP and other national organizations as well. So, yes, to your question... 
about the board of trustees. Um, mm -hmm. I, we've actually reached out to the chairman of the board of trustees. So we have reached out. We have not had conversations yet, but the intent now is our next steps. We will be communicating our actions directly to the board of trustees and President Frederick will be situationally aware of those communications because up until now, the communication has been directly with him, but this situation has not yielded progress. And we are in the best interest of the students and bringing resolution to this process. So at this point, the pressure will be turned up and it's not about changing the narrative or allowing them to control the narrative or show the public what they want to show us. They will be held accountable. And if it continues down the road where they are silencing these students and not willing to negotiate in terms of immunity, then the pressure will no longer come from the students. It will come from outside the students and they have no ability to take any sort of retaliatory action oh, to the so, civil rights community that yeah. rises up to hold them accountable for what they're responsible okay. for. Okay, so is there a timetable for that? Because it's getting cold outside. You know, I, it, it's hard for me to imagine these students sleeping in these pup tents. I went to the campus on Saturday. It's, it's, it's pathetic. The tents were drenched in water, you know, when it rains and whatnot. Is there a timetable for your actions that you're planning? This week, phase okay. two, right. phase two will be implemented this week. And Thanks. our pressures are okay. to bring closure to the protest so that these students can come indoors. We can bring them to the table with the university and bring closure to these issues. Akosua Ali, uh, Channing Hill, any final thoughts very quickly on your part? We're running out of time. Cold in here. Um, it was cold when I went to sleep. I put an extra sweatshirt on and I have, I, I normally sleep very hot. So I put um, another pair of pants on, and it was colder when I got up this morning. And I've done everything I know to do, starting from I, I was raised in a household where my parents always told me, when you need help, ask for it. Ask for help. I've asked for help. I asked for help, you know, in 2019. And then students who came before me asked for help in 2018. And students who came before them asked for help in 2001 and 96. And however, it seems that not only do our voices continue to go unheard, but students continue to be traumatized on this campus. And Howard student Channing Hill will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to today's show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook and Twitter. And thank you to all of our supporters on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show for your support. Our podcast is on the ground with Esther Averam, and that's on all your podcast platforms. Our official podcast, social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included David Rovix performing November 4th, 2021 in Glasgow, Scotland at a rally outside the UN climate summit. And also it's your world by Gil Scott Heron. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam, 
Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>